0: Hello and welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us is Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a cardiologist and esteemed leader in helping healthcare professionals to prevent and address burnout. For 35 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. Robbie, why don't you kick it off?
1: Good morning, Jonathan. How are you today?
0: I'm doing
2: great. Feeling the love of Valentine's Day, Robbie. How are you?
1: Good. Well, as you say, we're recording on February the 14th, Valentine's Day. And as such, I think love would, would be a great topic on which to start. We know it's a powerful emotion that has accounted for at least one-third of all songs composed and much of the literature written across the past uh, numerous centuries. It can impact and augment our health, and losing it can send us into deep depression. What are your initial
2: thoughts about love and human health Mm. if I'm being honest my initial thought about love is that it's it can be a little sappy uh for those of us who grew up in more intellectual uh kind of nerdy cerebral households it wasn't something that we talked about it was kind of behind the scenes it was understood based on behaviors of my parents we knew that there was love in the house but for me the love that I experienced didn't match the love that I saw on all of those uh, songs that you talked about, heard in those songs or saw in all the uh, romantic depictions of love on TV. So I was left, at least as a younger kid with a bit of confusion, and actually a little disappointment that I wasn't experiencing all this uh, grandeur of love. Uh, fortunately. I've become a student of love in the last decade or two, realizing that in my life arc, I needed to fill in some gaps. So I'm excited to dive in and I have some new experiences. And now I think about love as a skill, just like becoming a cardiologist was a skill and it took me 10,000 hours. If I can be good at love, it's gonna take work and practice and study. And I, I look at other people who experience deep love in their lives and i think about the things that i want to take into my own life and i've i've developed a few practices to help with that
1: well i can't wait to hear all of that and i'm actually a little bit surprised you know i've looked into some of the research on love and at least in the early attraction it appears to have a very profound biochemical component driven predominantly by dopamine uh, and actually has been thought to be somewhat analogous to even addiction from nicotine or even cocaine. It's a drive that is not really as much based upon intellect or based upon emotion, but on motivation. And yet at the same time, we know that it improves the immune system and leads to longer life. Why don't you tell me about some of the learnings you've had about this arc of the love uh, rainbow?
2: Yeah, well, it started within myself. I've experienced quite a bit of loneliness, I would say, and fear. And I experienced the stress of medical school and residency profoundly. So when I was on my surgical rotation for hours at a time and I came home to a lonely apartment in Boston, and uh, I would order take out Chinese and uh, I wouldn't have anybody there and I really uh, had let go of, frankly, some of the important relationships in my life because I did not value love I valued success uh, of becoming a, a quote great doctor and that actually was part of the reason I became burned out is because I undervalued and under indexed love and I over indexed quote unquote success, or at least the way that it was modeled by some of my teachers. And after realizing that, that a lot of my own suffering was because I was missing out on my own heart, I had essentially Robbie shut off my own heart because of either some bullying or feeling different or feeling like I didn't belong as a kid, I found a very safe way to go through my life was to kind of close myself off to other people. And that, it worked for a while. And then as I dove into the literature of positive psychology, I asked the question, I want to be happy. I want to be a happy and successful person. Uh, The thing that came to the top, just like you were saying, was successful happy people have love in their hearts they have deep connections they feel a sense of belonging not just with the group that they're in but belonging within themselves they're kind to themselves they love themselves so uh that led me to the practice of what's called loving kindness which is a a buddhist technique or practice which is three thousand years old essentially saying yes it's a dopamine it's a craving But you can also train yourself to feel and think in certain ways just by force of habit. And so this loving kindness practice is every day I'll send myself wishes of warmth and love, just like I would get flowers for my wife, which for Valentine's Day, which I have to go out and get uh, still. I send myself flowers essentially each day. I say, "I, I love myself. I'm proud of myself. And then from there, it shows up in all of my relationships but not the other way around.
1: Listening to you describe your time in medical school and in your training, uh, it's sad. I mean, I can feel the negative emotion, the pain, the suffering, and it's interesting to me that research on childhood has shown that the absence of love produces anxiety, depression, mood disorders, And I wonder whether in our training programs, particularly ones, I'll say, more in the past when you were training, and particularly in places maybe like Boston, uh, Mm. that the love was not a priority for the mentors and the teachers of the program. In fact, in many ways, maybe somewhat the opposite. And whether that's just an environment designed to produce a lack of love And to some extent, as a result of that, to Mm. produce the kinds of psychological dysfunctions, or at least leading to that, not intentionally, that you experienced sitting in uh, your apartment, eating Chinese food. Mm. But after, again, the research shows that after this phase of dopamine, there's a phase that has the hormones of oxytocin and vasopressin. And these are actually hormones that are at the opposite end of the spectrum ones that have intimacy commitment attachment and lead to um group formation and actually develop relationships and it sounds as though you were traversing that arc maybe Hmm. without even knowing it
2: it's, it's true. And the science, Robbie, is fascinating. And as you know, I have a whole chapter in my book, Just One Heart, about the science of love and the science of empathy and compassion and, and how, and it's based on my own internal experience. As I started these practices of developing loving kindness, which really, I started out by hitting a brick wall because I realized that I treated myself the opposite of lovingly for a long time. And, and I know that I'm not alone in that a lot of people want to have more love in their lives but they're really unkind to themselves Um, and so i felt a shift in the chemicals in my own body i know it sounds strange but i i really could feel a drop in the cortisol levels the adrenaline level of living in a state of loneliness isolation and fear and as i opened myself up to these practices of compassion love kindness and even recognizing that as i was with my patients there was love in the room, but I just wasn't tapping into it. And as I turned up the volume on that, I could feel the oxytocin, almost like I wanted when I was a kid. You know, when a mother hugs a child, that's the root of our awareness of how to love. It comes from the first relationships, as you say, which is why so many people, a large percentage of people who had none of that, or even had worse, had adverse childhood events, that leads to not only poor emotional health, but poor cardiovascular health as adults, because instead of the oxytocin and the serotonin release and a little bit of dopamine, there's high levels of cortisol and more of the stress-related hormones instead of the love-related hormones. I firmly believe, Robbie, that love heals the heart, and I use that in my clinic. I used it yesterday with 20 patients. Each one, I thought to myself, how can we bring love into the room to help this person's nervous system settle down, cardiovascular system relax? And, uh, and I love your emphasis on kind of the science and also the feelings behind it.
1: As you note, there has been a significant amount of research demonstrating this relationship of love producing improved immunity fewer colds, fewer negative reactions in the face of uh, threats around ourselves and the ability to respond, as you say, with high levels of cortisol. And obviously, at the opposite end, the absence of love would diminish all of that. When people look at the arc of love, and there's been a lot of studies on it, you know, following both of these phases you and I have talked about, In terms of this initial response, when we shut off the frontal lobes, followed by the uh, opportunity to move on to a more communal type relationship. There's finally a phase that they talk about where passionate love moves to companion love. How do you see that in this model that you're designing, the relationship you have with yourself?
2: There's a phrase that comes to mind that I learned from one of my teachers uh, in Love and Compassion. Her name is Sharon Salzberg, and she's, a, she's known for her teachings in um, helping people meditate on love itself, this Buddhist practice. And she quotes from a movie called Dan in Real Life, which says that love is a, is a verb. Uh, love is an action. I'm paraphrasing here, which is a radically different approach Robbie than that first stage of the arc where we quote fall in love, even the phrase fall in love it's a very passive thing it's like you you trip and you fall and you stumble and oh look i'm attracted. And yes, at a very base level a very primal instinct level that we need that attraction, it has to stay there and often that spark can fade as we've been in relationships intimate relationships needs to be rekindled but in my own experience that is a passing phenomenon just like as you're saying and what we can really work on what we can pull the lever on is the longer term sustainable sense of intimacy with another person a significant other which is a predictor of mortality uh, and longevity if you want to live long perhaps the most important decision you can make is who do you love and who do you let love you uh, let love you yeah and uh, the choice we make And so that takes intention and it also takes a lot of work. It's a daily effort. Just like we talked in our last episode about when we wanna start a new habit of diet or exercise, you can't just one and done it and say, well, I'm gonna eat healthy this year and don't think about it. You shared that you think about these things every day. I believe it's the same with that second phase in the arc of love, which is thinking at the beginning of the day How am I going to show up to people in my life? Am I going to just fall into my default behavior of egotistical selfishness, it's all about me? Or am I going to elevate myself shift into the more modern prefrontal cortex, the left prefrontal cortex, where a lot of our ability to empathize and connect with others locates? Can I tap into that? And then at the end of the day, Robbie, there's great research showing That if you simply ask yourself the question at the end of the day, did I love well today, or did I get into conflict with others, after just a few weeks of that, your overall mood starts to shift because there's a subconscious shifting in your behavior. And you start to, if you're interested, you start to behave in a more kind and caring way, simply by that act of first setting intention at the beginning of the day and then reflecting at the end of the day was I loving in my relationships today?
1: Although sexual activity augments all of these hormonal releases and in a positive way can promote a greater commitment and longer term relationship, there's been a lot of research showing that the same arc happens with family, with friends and even with pets. And I think goes along with everything that you're saying, we need an expanded definition of love in our life to include kinds of relationships that are very personal to the ones that are very familiar to the ones that are very communal. And as an owner of a dog, I'll say that extends even to the pets that love us very closely. And we can have a uh, very strong bond often equal to that of with people, not mm. to replace it, but to simply add another dimension to our lives.
2: Mm. I'm thinking about that now because my, I, I closed my dog Cosmo out of the room because he likes to bark and he's just sort of barking from the other side of the door. And, uh, and I, I, definitely, I definitely experienced the love from both of my dogs. And you know, there's plenty of research showing that animals uh, and connecting with animals can help settle our nervous system. I, I did think of something, Robbie, as you were speaking, when you talk about this idea, this arc, uh, or this spectrum of love. I like to think about if I'm helping a patient, for example, who I, has high blood pressure, and, and I often will see patients who have either high blood pressure or poor eating habits, which are related to isolation, loneliness, and stress, or they're addicted to smoking, as really rooted in an absence of connection, in an absence of love, And I ask myself, where is this person on the, what I call the ladder of love? Are they at the lowest rung, which is in the opposite direction? Are they actually filled with anger, cynicism, resentment, hostility? Are they constantly judging other people in the world in their opposite political party? Uh, Or is someone at the, moving on in the spectrum, is this someone who's less judgmental? Uh, more open to new experiences. So I wanted to bring that out, Robbie, because someone listening might think, oh, you're making it sound so easy. You could just switch on the the switch of love and you feel it. And it's kind of like magic. And I wanna offer the fact that it's it's just not that easy uh, for those of us who maybe weren't steeped in you know, this, this uh, sense of opening your heart and feeling warm hearted and lovey-dovey uh it can take a bit of work and there are some rungs on that ladder as we climb up from maybe more judgmental more harsh cynical view of the world and others just sort of working with that before we get into the full other end of the spectrum
1: very well said jonathan you know speaking about positive experiences i just had the opportunity to travel to the philippines on a mission trip and help children born with cleft lip and cleft palate live a more positive life. I would participated in dozens of such trips before I became the CEO in Kaiser Permanente. But once I had taken on that responsibility, it was no longer possible for me to be gone for such extended time periods. This was my first such trip since then, but I can tell you that it won't be my last, because every time I go, I'm amazed. You know, you travel to another nation, often one that's socioeconomically challenged. You get up before 6 a.m., you operate for 12 hours in ORs without air conditioning, subsist on rice, beans, and occasional egg. You go to sleep physically spent and wake up the next morning and repeat the sequence. And when you return home, everyone on the trip is invigorated and rejuvenated. What's going on? And what Mm -hmm. do you think American medicine can learn from what I would label a universal experience.
2: I have ideas about what's going on, Robbie. I have a question for you, which is, and I read your Forbes article and it was beautiful. And I, I really recommend people read it about that, your experience there. My question is, what is it about that is that so meaningful for you? Why is that meaningful? Why would you choose to leave your home uh, and to fly, fly to the Philippines, and to do this work for 12 hours on end. Before you even get into the rewarding aspect, what, what made you make that decision?
1: I think it ties into what we just talked about, about love, and that's mission and purpose. And that mission and purpose are connected with a fundamentally human-to-human experience, And it's that relationship that I believe creates this same healthier environment within us. Hmm. I mentioned that article, you know, a mother who walks for two days across the mountains from her village that is far distant. I mean, there aren't any roads or anything. She has her baby on her back. She has no guarantee that the doctors who have flown in, are going to be able to be willing even to do something. And she comes with hope. Mm. And you watch this bond of this mother and this child, and you feel so insignificant Mm. in the day-to-day work that you do. And suddenly, you have higher purpose. Mm. And this emotion, I think, that is what fills people. It's why we go to medicine in the first place. It's why yeah. we choose it for our career to apply to medical school. And it is just so different than what happens in the offices of doctors across yeah. the United States today, where I think often it's a business. And so yeah. it's this chasm between this very personal, emotional relationship, the one that led our specialty, our profession mm. for millennia, when we had little to offer patients and had today has i fear been lost in the corporatization of american medicine
2: it's beautiful uh, the story and you know the way you described the mother and the tears in their eyes i could almost feel myself welling up and i think you answered in in that answer the the answer to the question is why are these experiences so powerful and actually so essential not just in healthcare but in any modern workplace that's struggling with meeting the the bottom line and the stated outcomes, why is it so hard in this day and age? And I think the answer has to do with an absence of that higher sense of meaning and purpose. You know, when you look at the field of positive psychology, which is the science of living well, that's often applied to the workplace and organizational culture and asking the question, how can we have people not just be efficient and have high productivity, quote unquote, but how can the workers themselves become more than workers, feel like human beings fulfilling their purpose? And the reason for that, the reason it's important is that whether you look at McKenzie's research or other research, when a worker has that sense of purpose and meaning beyond the mundane, beyond just checking off the boxes, productivity takes care of itself. It goes up the numbers are something like 500%. And uh, and in fact, you are talking about having a sense of meaning by contributing to a cause around the world, by helping people you don't even know. And for me, that speaks to the power of altruistic behavior, which is one of the, the most elevated forms of human experience. We just feel good when we're helping others, not for our own benefit. Um, so I see a lot of applications to this in healthcare, especially. And it's really comes down to the difference of are you working as a worker. Just to get the job done or do you have a sense of your calling and larger purpose that you're doing something that's you're going to leave behind. And are you aware of that each and every day when you go to work and when you come home from work and most people who are burned out nurses doctors executives who are burned out. They've lost that sense of purpose and connection to helping another human being, either to eliminate their suffering, which a lot of doctors go into it, like you, or to help people live their best possible lives, which is what a lot of sort of coaches and psychologists are helping do. So, uh, I, I love uh, how you're bringing all these uh, these topics to the to the forefront.
1: As you were speaking, a uh, aphorism came to my mind that I use a lot when I teach leadership, that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm. And as you were talking, what was sort of the movie playing through my mind was how universal that is. And it's not that you don't care, but they have to know that you care. That's mm. the active verb that uh permeates Mm. recommendation and what you're describing are all of the problems that make it so hard for a patient to know that the doctor cares for a Mm. patient to know that the nurse cares because all of the distractions whether it's the regulatory whether it's going to be the documentation the electronic medical record the billing the claims the prior authorization, we go down the whole list of ways that that human bond, and I think it very much ties into love in a very different kind of way than in our personal relationships. But in many ways, medicine today makes it impossible for us to show our love, Mm. even though we have it inside of us. And that Mm. lack of connection, my best guess is, I've not seen research on it. Actually has hormonal consequences both for us and for the patient.
2: Yeah. I'm thinking, Robbie, you what you highlighted there is how much of a radical act it is to be a leader who leads with love. Even even as I say those words, um, I, I imagine if I had said those words 10 years ago or 20 years ago, or if I said them in certain workplaces, I would be laughed out of the room. What I'm noticing and whether that's my narrow perspective from linkedin or speaking with other leaders across the country is that there is a shift in the way we do business at least in the west uh people are fed up with the traditional you know 1970s and 80s model of business which is it's all about the dollar the almighty dollar and and that may have worked for a while um the wolf of wall street movie uh, represented that pretty well But I I do think that there's a shift happening, and I hope I'm not naive in this, and I think it's a shift towards bringing more love into the workplace and realizing that not only is that not going to make outcomes, it's not gonna make things worse by bringing more feelings, more of our humanity and connection to the work, but it actually will improve. And I think for a, a business, whether it's healthcare or otherwise, to be successful, the leaders have to tap into their own power of love. Because if their workers don't feel loved and cared for in a sense that there's actually someone who cares for them, that's when workers leave. And that's one of the strongest factors, regardless of industry. If you look at the research, why do healthcare, why do physicians leave their job? Yes, there's burnout, but it really matters do they feel like there's a leader and an organization that cares about them as a human being, Uh, because that, that can make all the difference.
1: That's another aphorism that you know. no one quits a job. They quit a work relationship because they're not experiencing what you're talking about. But I think you might be a bit optimistic and mm. that's hard for me to say because I think of myself as an optimist mm. that change is happening. And I don't think it's uh, a lack of desire, a lack even of knowledge about everything you're saying being true I think it comes down to the FIFA service method of reimbursement and payment that drive people to get on this treadmill and run ever, ever, ever faster, and in many ways to be bringing in the short-term corporate uh, view of finances. If I think about one of the things that I'm most proud of when I was CEO, it's that despite the inevitable ups and downs of healthcare, they refused to ever terminate people's jobs simply because of the economics we faced. I felt that the consequences of that on a family were gonna be so great that it was a pain that unless somehow it, had a positive impact on the life of patients, and I couldn't see what that would be, I could not bring myself to do it. I would say to people, we've got to be more flexible. We've got to be willing to work in different ways. Maybe all of us together need to slide back a small amount, but the idea of telling someone that now they don't have a job and the idea of them going home and having to tell that to their families to me was just going to be so painful. I feel privileged that I had the ability to do that. I think if the business had been teetering on disappearing like some small businesses, maybe there would be no choice. That would be that existential type of circumstance. But I think all too often we make decisions as leaders, that are based not upon the needs of humans and people, but about the, I'll say, corporatization. I think about it that way. I don't think people are intentionally wanting to be negative when it comes to interpersonal relationships. I just think they get blinders on as a result of day-to-day being in a role that is measured by, as you called it earlier, success, particularly in this format, financial.
2: Mm. Robbie, do you think there's something that happens to a leader as they move up the corporate ladder uh, towards the CEO position eventually that maybe forces them or makes it harder for them to think about the human elements? And, um To be a little bit more isolated and uh, to have more of an eye out for simply dollars and cents and to lose track of that or or is it possible for a young leader to decide at the very beginning of their career that no matter what else happens they won't lose their humanity when they make it to the top and start making decisions that impact how an organization behaves and what their standards of of behavior are
1: i love recording unfiltered because You always provide new insights and I'll take us back to the start of today's conversation, your experience as a medical student. What was it that made you lose that humanity? No one ever told you to do it. It's just the culture that you found yourself in. It's the norms and the expectations, the words that we use, what people value and don't value. And over time, that erodes like water eroding sand. And you find yourself suddenly having, I'll say, a lack of the type of compassion that you started with at the front end. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true in medical training. And I think that's true in the administrative pathway upwards. I don't think that it's necessary. But I think it's very hard to avoid. And I would hope that it's actually easier in medicine than it is in other industries, particularly ones that are for profit, although, as we both know, medicine is evolving, particularly with private equity, particularly around with more physicians working inside hospitals and inside insurance companies. I think we're evolving in that direction, and it's, very, it's going to be very hard to resist the riptides.
2: Hmm. As you're describing that, Robbie, I, it occurs to me that there are three cases to be made uh, in healthcare or, or other industries for bringing love and compassion into the workplace. And as I was thinking of those three, I was reminded of the work of uh, Stephen Cisiak and Anthony, Anthony Mazzarelli, who wrote uh, the book Compassionomics which was really an important book, and it's at the root of a lot of what we're talking about, which is, you know, some people make the case for bringing uh, care and compassion from leaders um, on the basis of simply ethical behavior, moral behavior. It's just the right thing to do, and a more cynical approach says, well, that's, <laughs> that doesn't cut it. Um, leaders are, are not moral or ethical necessarily, and sometimes they, they may lose their way. The second case that you've made at the start is that it, it actually is good for the physical health, uh, the physical and emotional health of the the employee, the worker, to feel cared for, to feel loved, as opposed to, as I went through a culture where I didn't feel like anybody really cared about me, it was whether I was presenting properly, or I could present without my notes, or whatever it was, it wasn't, hey, um, you want to go out for, you know, a bite to eat after work today, so the, this the first the first case is, is simply the moral and ethical case to be a leader who, who is knowledgeable about bringing care, compassion, and love into the workplace. The second is, well, if that's not enough, realize that it impacts the cardiovascular health of your employees. You, know, you can kill people by stressing them out and burning them out in the workplace year over year. People don't live as long. And then the third has to do with business outcomes, which is where compassionomics comes in. If you don't want the other two reasons to bring more love on this Valentine's Day into your leadership style, how about just the fact that you're going to have a more successful business and organization and the numbers prove that you're going to have a financially more successful business? Because when people feel loved and cared for, they tend to give more of themselves and give more to others.
1: I really like that framework uh if you go go back in my career i used to tell people all the reasons medicine needs to be transformed because it's the right thing to do because it will save lives because it will improve health i had a long list and the list was accurate but years later nothing changed i Mm. was surprised you would think that as a health profession that approaches and tools and things like disease prevention and avoidance of complications from chronic disease. This would be motivating as the reason why we came into the profession, the opportunity to prolong life, uh, increase health. We go down the whole list. But I've actually shifted uh, to um, the third framework. Uh, Maybe it's because I teach in the business school. But I believe in the end, what drives change is the economics. But it's also why I'm optimistic, because for the reasons you say, doing the right thing happens to be economically positive, and that yeah. will make the change happen, although it could be difficult. And the good part is, it's going to have a lot of positive benefit. You know, yeah. if we look at medical practice today, Jonathan, My view is that major improvements are necessary. We do actually a relatively poor job at preventing the kinds of chronic disease that we could, at being able to avoid the heart attacks and strokes and cancers that derive from it. We have areas of misdiagnosis. We have areas of patient safety lapses. We can go down hundreds of thousands of millions of people who suffer as a consequence, not of bad intention, but simply of circumstances that exist. And I'm absolutely convinced that if we can move and transform medicine, we can change all of those things, not because it's the right thing to do, which it is, and we should, but because Mm. it will have the positive economic benefit Going back to what I said earlier about laying people off, it's so interesting that when I looked around, at the end of whatever cycle was happening, after people were laid off and they got some type of payment, six months, 12 months, 18 months later, there was a deficiency of people. And now they had to go through the hiring process and the training process. And we had the people there who had worked together, who had collaborated, cooperated, who knew their jobs exceedingly well. And we were therefore way ahead of everyone else. And the slight bumps up and down by smoothing them out now facilitate the kinds of relationships that you're describing. And I agree, you know, the workplace is the second space after our homes Hmm. and the same kinds of values sitting there, the same kind of human to human relationships, I believe is what allows people to do better work, and as a consequence of that, to improve the health of patients. And so on this Valentine's Day, as you say, I think that we have to look for the opportunities to have love throughout our life, whether it's in an individual relationship, whether it's in all families, whether it's with parents, children, colleagues, and the opportunity to recognize that, as the Beatles said, all you need is love.
2: Hmm. Beautiful. Well, Robbie, I'm feeling the love today and uh, really grateful to be here with you uh, every month and have these these conversations, which push and stretch and help me grow and uh, hopefully help others as well.
0: So at the beginning of the episode, you talked about the positive impacts love and good relationships can have on a person health wise. Uh, Let's kind of flip that around. I'm curious, uh, could you guys both dive into a little bit the negative impacts of hate and harboring resentment and negative feelings and and, and kind of that toxicity?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to jump in, Jeremy. So coming back to the chemicals that are released just on a really simple level there's lots of changes that happen so if you go out today and you go to the store and the clerk at the store is nasty to you and mean to you and harsh with you your blood pressure may go up your heart rate may beat faster you may start to sweat a little bit because you have adrenaline coursing through your veins you have cortisol going through your veins Uh, and you can imagine that if that's not just a one-time thing but if that's where you work If you have a partner let's say who's kind of a jerk Uh, they don't know basic human kindness they don't have emotional intelligence or if it's your boss can you imagine what happens after a week of that a month of that with those chemicals flooding your veins what's happening to your body let alone to changes that are literally happening in your brain your brain is setting off an alarm every day saying this is not a safe place i'm in danger i'm in danger your body is preparing Jeffrey Pfeffer at Stanford wrote a book called Dying for a Paycheck, and he touches on some of that, where a toxic work environment, often with toxic bosses or colleagues, behavior that is not shut down, a workplace that is not emotionally and psychologically safe, it's, it's not just an unpleasant place, but its it causes physical harm. And then coming finally around to my perspective as a cardiologist, there's strong research data showing that When you work in an environment where there's a toxic behavior over and over and over, you have a higher risk of heart attack and stroke. Uh, Job stress, particularly where you don't have a a control over what happens and people place lots of demands on you, uh, along with those other behaviors, you are going to be physically ill.
1: I concur completely with Jonathan And I would add, however, the idea that we as a society in the United States particularly have lost an ability to develop the positive kinds of relationships that we talked about earlier and where we have gone. And I would almost call it out of desperation because we discussed in great detail the negative consequences of not having these relationships is to form them in the context of others. By which I mean, we find people with our views and we do that to denigrate other people outside of us. And that to me is the driver of polarization. And I worry because uh, Jonathan referred to earlier what's called ACEs which are these uh, negative childhood experiences that not only have tremendous problematic health consequences for our lives, uh, much higher chance of heart attacks, much higher chance of hypertension, of strokes. We could go down a litany of places and it doesn't only last for one generation, it actually is passed on to other, to the children and to the next children because you never learn the tools the approaches that Jonathan spoke about so uh, uh, eloquently to be able to put love into your life. And so I think what we're seeing within this, and I think you're alluding to Jeremy, and you've spoken about it and its negativity, and listeners, of course, will recognize it as well, is that we've been able to figure out, I'll call it out of desperation, how to find love from those who are like us, but to do so only at the expense of those who are somewhat different. And the gap between those two parts, unfortunately, is growing greater. And I have tremendous fears about what's gonna happen into the future. Uh, Hopefully, somehow our nation will find a way to heal. Maybe if they all read Jonathan's upcoming book, that would be the best way to solve the health of our country. So thank you so much for your question.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast and will tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to Robbie's website, robertpearlmd.com, and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Corr, and Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Have a great day.